In Acts 22, beginning verse 1, God's word declares, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the counsel of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus. And there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will, and see the just one, and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem, was praying in the temple, that I was in a trance, and saw him saying to me, Make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprison and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And they listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. Observing and studying the implications and applications of Paul's uh, travel to Jerusalem, his final trip there from what we can tell, Uh, We have looked at his interactions with some of his uh, churches that he established, particularly there in Ephesus. We have seen his interactions with many of the believers in and around the region of Judea. Uh, Also with the church leadership (coughs) and with some of his own people. In terms of those that traveled with him, his companions. And now we see him in his engagement with Uh, the Jews of Jerusalem. And we, of course, have been dismayed over several facets 
that when we have myriads of Jews coming to know the Lord, as we have been described for us by James, we find that none of them are coming to his defense. We ask ourselves, where are they who are described by James as zealous for the law? Where are they while Paul is being stoned to death, or essentially, or beaten to death, was the intention. We have found that Paul's rescuers, very confused about what's going on, though their responsibility is to guard this city and keep it peaceful. The city that is named for peace required a Roman guard to keep it peaceful. So we come to Paul's Uh, first testimony. As we've seen, his testimony is going to be as his custom was in his mission, first to the Jews, then when they thoroughly reject it, he will then turn to the Gentiles. And as that pattern has been in his church planting efforts, we're going to see that same pattern um, now in his uh, arrest in this new phase of ministry where he is ministering as a prisoner. And we're going to see that his testimony is not going to change dramatically. There's going to be some nuances that we're going to focus on later on between his testimony to the mob of Jerusalem and to Felix and Festus, to King Agrippa, and on through the balance of the book of Acts. But we come to an opportunity that he has that he wants to take hold of because, as he has declared in Romans and other places, his heart is that all Israel would be saved. He would be willing to sacrifice his place in heaven if it meant that all Israel would be saved. And so it is fitting. This is not just a requisite act that he had to do, but rather it was out of a heart that even having been bloodied and beaten, the very people who are perpetrating this against him, he turns with a heart desiring to reach them. And out of that attitude and out of that spirit come the words that we have already read today in Acts chapter 22 that we want to get into our study. And we'll really just look at two facets of this message in depth and the rest Uh, We have already studied extensively in the historical description of them by Luke in the book of Acts. But we want to look at two facets of his presentation of the gospel, of his testimony, if you will, and look into our handling of the testimony and also our mission. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and again for the opportunity to look in your word. And we come before it uh, humbly recognizing that in our own intelligence and wisdom we are sorely lacking in being able to rightly divide your word of truth. And so, Lord, we pray for your Spirit's illumination and direction, and, and uh, we pray that we might, as we are dependent upon him, seek your truth. You might guard this time from error, from the opinions of men, from the philosophy of this world. That it, uh, as we study your word, that you might instruct us by it through your Spirit. To your glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we begin, off, we begin as we ended last week by looking at the tenderness of his approach to those who had just beaten him. He doesn't call them a bunch of dirty, rotten sinners. He comes in with the terms of very deep respect 
and a personal relationship with them. He calls them uh, by these two terms, brethren and fathers, recognizing that within this body of people that he is speaking to are also the religious leaders of his people. And that's who he's referring to as fathers, those who have that access to God's word, have that access to the law, have that access to the truth, and have the authority to uh, teach it and to exercise it. And he's also acknowledging, and he's doing it very vividly through the Hebrew language, that uh, he is with them, that he was, is not distinct from them outside of one specific facet. That is that he can easily associate with them. And this is the first aspect of his testimony that we really want to begin to understand in Paul's uh, ministry to the Jews. Uh, we saw other places where he and Barnabas would walk in and there you would have a rabbi and a priest together and the accoutrements that they would be wearing, they would immediately set them apart and you would recognize their capacity to be able to communicate God's word and to minister it within a synagogue, that they could do this from city to city all across uh, the Roman Empire as they encountered communities that had synagogues. Um, and here we have a very similar uh, scenario laid out. Paul begins by speaking in the Hebrew tongue. Now, some, some versions have it Aramaic, but it's pretty clearly the Hebrew tongue uh, that he's using because this is the language of the Temple Mount. This is the language of the rabbis. This is the language of priests. Um, this is the language that uh, sets it apart, and there's a sudden recognition that this is not being spoken to the Romans at all. This is not being addressed to them. This is not the language of, of the courts of Jerusalem anymore. This is the language of worship. This is, uh, we don't really have that a lot in, in, in our Protestant uh, or in our Baptist heritage either. Um, but uh, in the Catholic heritage, they have that. When you walk into a, a Catholic event and you find Latin being spoken, you go, whoa, wait a minute. Now you know what kind of Catholic church you're in because it's very formal. And uh, most of them have gone away from that Latin, but it wasn't so very long ago that all their services was, were done in Latin. And now when you hear that Latin being spoken, it, it catches you and you listen and you realize, oh, I may not understand everything here, but there's this other language. And so now the Hebrew tongue is being used by Paul as the first way of association. I am and have been one of you. And this is going to form the groundwork, really, of the first half of his testimony, is that I once were where you are. I once was where you are. Well, I, I was, yeah. I once was where you are. And we see this in other writings of Paul and Corinthians is, and where he's defending himself. Listen, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees and he goes right through his credentials and he could easily have done that here. But he does so and establish himself by speaking um, the temple language, the Hebrew ministry language. And we then have him moving in and using this terminology, brethren and fathers, hear my defense. And so he is again drawing them in that listen, I was one of you. 
I'm not some foreigner in this place. Yes, I was born in Tarsus, but I was raised here. And he goes right into his <coughs> background. And he says, um, I was brought up at the, in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a noted teacher. And of course, we already met him earlier. Um, he is the one that gave the advice. This says, listen, if this is of God, we shouldn't be messing, working against it. And if it's not of God, it's just going to disappear. He's the one that gave that kind of advice. And so this was the teacher of Paul. Um, this is the one who raised him up. Now remember, this is 25 years since Christ's crucifixion. So we are quite a ways uh, down the road, and we're not sure that all these people are alive, but their reputations are certainly still there. 25 years ago is when the events of the early parts of the book of Acts, the end of the Gospels, um, were played out. Many of those are still alive. Many of the individuals that were there are still alive. And in fact, as Paul is going to call them to remembrance and actually to witness, um, many of those that he associated with were still very much alive and present in the mob. But he stops and he backs up and he says, I am a Jew. Um, I was born that way. I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, just up north. Um, but while I was born there, I spent all of my upbringing in terms of my formal training here in this city. This is my home. Um, this is my second home, if you will. This is where I went to school, and I have a lot of affection for this place, and in fact, I've traveled here multiple times. And he has. We have seen him throughout the course of the book of Acts keep referencing back to Jerusalem. After his events in Damascus, he heads back to Jerusalem. Um, after he has been up in, uh, and they have, uh, he narrowly escapes and gets off to Tarsus. He is brought to Antioch, but again, they go back down to Jerusalem to give a report of what God is doing. And uh, Jerusalem Council was held there. So we have this, this consistent, regular contact with Jerusalem, um, even in Paul's uh, following of the way during that period of his life as as he is about to testify to here a little bit later on. And so he wants them to know that I'm one of you in terms of birth. I have the legal standing as one of your race, of your ethnicity. I was taught here under the feet of Gamaliel, and that immediately identifies him as a Pharisee. He didn't have to go into it any further than that. They knew what that meant. They knew who this man was. They knew what his school taught. And in that Paul simply identifies himself. I was here getting formal training as a Pharisee, as a rabbi. Taught not according to a liberal doctrine, but he says, according to the strictness of our Father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. We see this this development of this whole association drawing them in and essentially saying, listen, the one you are accusing all of this is one of you. I was where you are. That's who I was. That defined me. I defined myself as a keeper of the law, as one who would teach that under its strictest form. And I was the one. I was the, the, the point of the spear uh, against the way of Christ. 
I was the one who held the letters from the council members to persecute the members of this way. That's who I was. That is my history. And there are those in the mob that could witness to that very fact. Yes, in fact, that's who he was. Very zealous for the law. And again, we have that same word picked up on. It's a word that James used to describe the Judaistic believers and the compromise that the Church of Jerusalem had performed in allowing people come to Christ and still be zealous for the law. And again, as we've seen for the last couple of weeks, we, we haven't really addressed, um, or Paul, rather, hasn't really addressed that. He hasn't had opportunity to engage them in that. He has certainly engaged individuals in that in other places, and he is very capable of doing so. Um, but on this occasion, it seems that God is not going to permit him the opportunity to engage this, but he does make the effort to use the exact same term, I was zealous for the strictness of the Father's law and toward God, as you all are. And let there be no mistaking that you all there likely included some who are members of the church of Jerusalem. I know I'm arguing that from silence, and that's an extremely weak argument. But it is difficult to imagine that in this very important period of time, with a myriads of Jews, as James describes them, having believed in Jesus Christ and zealous for the law, are not in the midst of the events that have transpired uh, here in the Temple Mount. It is almost inconceivable that they, there weren't some of them there. And in their zealousness for the law, by which they have compromised salvation by grace through faith, they are now taken up in this mob mentality. And I'm convinced that among those that are hearing this are some who are going to be ashamed. For they claim to know Christ. And have believed in him, but in their zealousness for the law, they have allowed this kind of accusation to be carried forward and are participating in it. Well, how zealous for God was he as they were today, that day? Precisely as zealous. Right down to, I was ready to kill people too. In fact, I did it. I participate in exactly what you're participating in. I was doing 25, 24, 23 years ago, I was doing exactly what you are doing today. I was involved in that exact same activity. That defined who I was, and, and I wrapped myself around that. I was, shall I even say it, I was even more committed to it than you are today. How many of you are willing to travel around the region to hunt down followers of the way. I was. So Paul was even more <laughs> zealous. He was even more so what they are he once fully was, and then some. And he goes on and, and describes that, uh, that whole 
a facet of his life, that determination that he was going to eradicate this sect before it could even get off the ground. He had permission from the council to do it, and they all could testify to that. He was actively engaged in it. He had already consented to the death of Stephen. He had already consented to the imprisonment, certainly, and probability of death of many other believers in the earliest of the church. And he was now ready to make sure it didn't get outside of Jerusalem by stopping it everywhere he heard it had traveled. And so he begins his testimony very clearly saying, I once was just like you. Now this is a little bit different than maybe our idea of what that means. Normally we would think of our testimonies, I would have to go in there and explain to them that I was once a sinner just like them. But so far I don't know that the, the the people listening would associate what he has just described as sinful. In fact, they would consider this very righteous. And I really think that this is instructive for us. Um, We often want to approach people and talk about sin, and certainly that is absolutely necessary. You'll never, ever hear me balk or want you to balk at talking about and identifying that people are sinners. It is necessary. We use the law as a schoolmaster to teach people about their sin so that they are sorry and can come to Christ. But there is something... Uh, in addition to acknowledging sinfulness, um, that also we need to be participating in in our witnessing to people, particularly um, maybe in our realm today. And that is something that is uh, one of the most hideous sins, but isn't ever identified as a sin, and that is self-righteousness. What Paul has just described here to the secular Jew, to the not even sec, to, to the to the committed Jewish person, um, what he's just described here, um, you know, he he made his way from Cilicia to Jerusalem. He was taught by Gamaliel. He held to the strictest form of the Mosaic Law. He sought to implement it and to defend it. Um, uh, in terms of their perspective, this must be one of the most righteous guys around. And while we might look at this list and say, what Paul is trying to say is, I was once a sinner just like you, but that's really not what he is communicating, is it? What he's really communicating is, I was just as self-righteous as you think you are today. You, and this goes into his testimony in Corinthians, where he said, listen, if anyone had something to boast about, I had something to boast about. I was circumcised on the exact right day. And he goes right through from the eight eight days old, right on through his life, he says, listen, if anyone's got something to boast about, I do. And the fact remains is that what brings people or keeps people from being brought to repentance from to godly sorrow is self-righteousness it is the most heinous sin that is why in isaiah it says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags as menstrual cloths that are to be thrown out they are that's what our righteousness looks like and, and is like to cry to god 
It was self-righteousness that kept Israel from coming to repentance because they thought that, well, we are doing the sacrificial things on Saturday. Yes, we are going worshiping the gods of the Canaanites during the week, but we are fulfilling our responsibilities on Saturday at the temple or the synagogue. You see, self-righteousness is most often what keeps people from Christ. I think we are all generally willing to acknowledge, oh yeah, I've lied, but so has everybody else. I've stolen some things, little things, you know, postage stamp here and there maybe. But everyone does those kind of things. And we can rationalize that away. And of course the law is there to shine a bright light on those and call them what they are. But it is the idea that somehow I'm a good person inside. And I do do good things. That is really what keeps men from God. That somehow there's that spark of goodness inside of me and that, and, and I try hard. I hear that a lot. <laughs> well, I try hard to be, be a good person. And I'll go, you're not trying hard enough. How good do you need to be? And that's what I encounter more and more in the attitude and philosophy of our society today. What you are encountering and you're witnessing has to be about the same as what I'm encountering, and that is that it is self-righteousness that they are clinging to. I'm somehow kind of a good person. I'm not a horrible, wicked, evil man um, because I haven't done the worst crimes and yet we haven't associated that self-righteousness in God's eyes is among the worst. And so Paul, in associating, said, I was just as self-righteous as all of you are, think you are today. And yes, this is a man that later on says, I am the chief of sinners. Because on the other side of Christ, he realized all those things he was doing were some of the worst sins to be committed. This list that he has just described are some of the worst sins. And so Paul honestly declares, I am the worst of sinners. Because I was one of the most self-righteous people out there. That made me one of the worst of sinners. And I don't deserve to follow, to be called by the name of Christ. And I don't deserve to follow the way. I don't deserve to serve him. But by God's grace, I can do that. For all that he has accomplished for me. And so in our association with people, we generally want to come to you and say, yeah, I was once a sinner um, like you. And we think, well, that's the real powerful testimonies. When people come out and say, I was in drugs, I was in this, I was in that. And uh, they rehearse how deep in sin they were, and then how Christ delivered them from it. Um, And I remember growing up saying, boy, those are great testimonies. My testimony is boring. You know what? Um, My testimony is a lot like Paul's. I was raised right. Baptized at five years old, because that's what you're supposed to do, and Christian home, I was in Sunday school, church, evening service, midweek service, children's program, 
And no, my dad wasn't a pastor. He's a TV repairman. Wasn't even a deacon. But we were there every time the doors were open. I memorized verses. I could tell the Sunday school lesson sometimes better than the teachers. But none of that saved me. And it wasn't until I was 12 years old that I really received Christ as my Savior and Lord and then was baptized as a believer instead of just baptized a religious ritual. I used to think that testimony was kind of sorry. Not much to it. But Paul's testimony here is powerful because that's where most people are at that I've encountered. Most people are sure that because they have participated in some kind of religious ritual as a child, that somehow because they've had some religious instruction in their life or some ethical teaching, and that they are kind of a good person, that that's good enough. Let's, let's be real honest that most of the people you're meeting at work are not um, coming out of the testimonies that we hear from Chicago um, in the, what was the broadcast? I was just on the, I used to listen to the Christian radio station, the testimonies of, of, yeah, thank you, Pacific Garden Mission, and these men that were just murderers and drunks and drug addicts and pushers and all this coming to know Christ in inner city Chicago. The fact is, most of the people you meet meet aren't really there. Well, unless you're Julie, because everyone she meets at work is doing that crime. But um, we don't meet a lot of those people. A lot of your coworkers are very self-righteous. And that's where Paul begins. I was as self-righteous as you are, maybe more. I was just like you. And then God came and slapped me on the side of the head and said, that won't work. So he's involved in the activity, and God comes, and this is profound, and by the way, this is a very strong statement to make to the Jewish people, is is that a resurrected Christ met him and spoke to him that there were those who witnessed the light but did not hear the voice um, and the recognition that this is a profound event that a resurrected Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, transformed him and did not, by the way, in the midst of this, did not say, you need to believe in me and pray the sinner's prayer, right? Paul asked the question, who are you, Lord? And he asked the question later on, what shall I do, Lord? Now, if you and I are involved in witnessing and someone says, well, what do I do? We say, oh, pray this prayer. And that's not what Jesus told him. And we studied this when we went to the historical events in Acts. It's not what Jesus told him. He just says, um, just keep on going to Damascus. When you get there, you'll find a guy named Ananias and he'll tell you. What? I thought you were supposed to strike when the iron's hot. Charles Finney. Got to strike when the iron's hot. And he's the one that developed the altar call out of that, out of his very dramatic messages. And, and he just wanted people to come forward right at that moment. And 
Christ says, uh, I got it lined up for you in Damascus. I've got an agent there that'll talk to you and we'll get you straightened out. Um, meanwhile, you're going to walk around blind. So you will suddenly realize that as a self-righteous Jew, that's what you are spiritually. So I'm going to make you that physically. And so Paul shares that in his testimony that here, I thought I was doing right. I thought I was doing everything just so. I thought I was on the, the, the heaven track. I thought I was pretty far along. I was certainly way above all these other people. They weren't nearly as zealous as I was. Certainly I'm on my way. And as a 10, 11, and even early 12-year-old, I could make that confession. I could make that declaration. Yeah, I knew all the stories. I knew all the Bible stories. I memorized hundreds of verses. I had gotten the awards even as a 12-year-old. I was there every service. But that wasn't a relationship with Jesus Christ. That was nothing to trust in. Could I use it to God's glory later? Yes, but if I trusted in it, it would be one of the most heinous sins on the planet. And here in the midst of all his self-righteousness, Paul says, I don't know who the Lord is, and I don't even know what he wants me to do. Isn't that incredible? And this is what he's communicating to a mob. I was on the track that you're on. And when it came to my confrontation with Jesus Christ, I didn't know who he was. I didn't know what to do. Because none of that other stuff served me. It was not helpful. It was, if anything, a detriment to my coming to Christ. I could use it after I'd come to Christ to his glory and in in his study of God's word and his knowledge of, of Judaism as well as the Old Testament Certainly he could use those as to in, in ministry, but they kept him. And so Christ had to come and throw him to the ground and blind him that he might see. In the midst of his testimony, he has this conversation first with Jesus Christ, then with Ananias, and we're given a the fullest version of Ananias's role here before the Jews, which would make sense, right? Ananias apparently was a well-known Jewish figure um, in, Jeru- in Jerusalem even, though he lived in Damascus. And so Paul introduces him here and gives the fullest text that we have of Ananias's engagement with Paul um, there in Damascus. And look at the, the, what he is, uh, look, look at the fashion of it. And so here is a Jewish devout Jewish person who has a good testimony and comes to this blinded man who was there, supposedly there, to purify Damascus of Christians. Uh, Here comes a, a believing Jew, gives him his sight, and informs him that God has chosen you, that you should know his will, and see the just one, and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be as witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. 
All that self-righteousness didn't do me any good. And here I engage this Ananias and he tells me the whole story. And the whole story is, is that I am, I have been graced that God came and threw me off the, onto the ground, blinded me, that I could hear his voice, that I could then engage in whether I would follow him or not. And now it was time for me to witness. And it's interesting that no one got too upset with Ananias' phrase, you'll witness to all men. Because remember, they didn't really consider Gentiles men. Gentiles were dogs. So witness to all men, that's fine. What you have seen and heard. And then to make that public confession that there were sins to be dealt with of this very self-righteous person is the culmination of this process of Paul's conversion. It was not that we are ignoring sins, but rather that we are destroying self-righteousness first. Then the sins become weighty upon us and we recognize that my self-righteousness did not counterbalance my sin, but added to my sin. Once we get that thought into their mind and into their heart, then we can deal with that sin with the message of Jesus Christ. And so Paul shares that message that I had to deal with my sin and all of this uh, activity as a good Jewish young man didn't cut it. I was carrying sin that needed to be washed away through the blood of Jesus Christ. We know from earlier in Acts that he then was essentially had to escape Damascus, heads down to Jerusalem, meets with the brother, and they're a little afraid of him, and thanks to Barnabas going off and saying, oh, come on, I'll take the risk. And uh, they bring him in and finally introduce him. And in the midst of all this, uh, also in Jerusalem, his life is threatened. And we've come full circle now in his ministry life. He's back in Jerusalem with his life being threatened, kind of where he started. And he's just sharing this in his testimony, is that this isn't anything new. I've gone through this before, and I could have avoided it this time. God gave me ample warning just like he gave me warning there. But I want you to see in Paul's response to God's telling him to get out of Jerusalem. Verse 18, and this is the second facet of his testimony that I think we need to understand why Paul um, changes his approach when he comes to the Sanhedrin later on in chapter 23. And, And so... Let's just pick up and and see this conversation between Paul and and God. Verse 18. I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. And Paul's response is not um, a complaint. It is an argument. He basically doesn't want to leave Jerusalem. He's comfortable there. He knows his way around Jerusalem. He knows the people in Jerusalem. And he believes he has an audience in Jerusalem. 
He really believes that. Look at his statement. His statement is, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing me. Killing him, I'm sorry. Um, and then, of course, God's going to say, get out of here. Depart. Get out of Jerusalem. I've got work for you to the Gentiles. We're going to get to the Gentile facet as we look into the response more next week. But I want you to consider Paul's argument. Paul's argument, I've heard this argument used by a good number of people for all the wrong reasons, much for the same wrong reasons as Paul uses it here. Listen, Lord, if anyone can talk to these people, it's me. I mean, these people know me. They know what I was. And they can now look at who I am. And certainly if there's anyone in the church of Jerusalem today that can reach this, these people, it's me. They know. Now remember, this isn't 25 years later. This is a few weeks later. After he was sent to Damascus to round up Christians up there, he comes back as a follower of this Jesus Christ. And in Paul's mind, he's looking around at these people who he has an intimate relationship with. He knows them by first name. He is their spear point of their attack on the way. And he says, Lord, <laughs> they know me. They know that I was just like them. They know that, that I was heading up there. They should be able to see the transformation you have made of my life. And if anyone can reach them, I can reach them. These are the people that I know, I love, I care about. These are the people I can relate to. I have had no contact with Gentiles. Sound familiar? So why don't you just let me stay here in Jerusalem? These are my surrounds that I'm used to. These are, these are uh, social areas that I can glide in and out of. I can, I can move in this area. I know this place. I can minister here. And God says, get out of Jerusalem. And get out of your comfort zone. And start to recognize that you are not the one who can reach these people. And if you think that this is just Paul's problem, it's not. In fact, it's a pretty consistent statement throughout God's word. That being saved out of it doesn't mean you are the most qualified to lead people out of it. Out of the same kind of life. Just to put it in perspective, Jesus had the same problem in his hometown where they knew him. Didn't he? He was unable, not unwilling, unable to perform many miracles there because of their lack of faith. They couldn't get over the fact that we watched this kid grow up. He can't be that guy. He can't be the Messiah. We watched him grow up. There's Mary. There's his brothers. Come on. They couldn't get over that. Paul here is going to have the same problem. And 25 years later, he still has the same problem. 
And Jesus rightly said, a prophet is recognized everywhere but in his home country, his home city, his homeland. He's on everywhere but there. And, and there, there needs to come a point that we recognize that familiarity, while we have a great love for these people, a great desire to reach them, and maybe feel that there's no one more qualified than me to do it because I know exactly what they're thinking and how they live and, and what's going on in their life, doesn't make you the most qualified to reach them. In fact, you may be a detriment to reaching them. Get out of the way. And if there's any place that this happens more often than anywhere else, it's with family members. Because we love them, we want to reach them. Who knows your family members better than you? Who knows your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister better than you? And who loves them more? Well, Jesus does. And Jesus does know them better and loves them more. But the fact is, is that many times we're one of the worst ones to reach them. Why? Because in their familiarity, there is a level of almost contempt and an unwillingness to listen. And here Paul desperately wanted, I'm convinced, to stay in Jerusalem minister. And God had to repeat himself and says, depart from Jerusalem. Get out. It's not what I have for you. It is not the will that Ananias declared to you. Ananias says, you're going to have to witness to all men what you have seen and heard. And we see that same heart in Paul everywhere he went. He went to the Jews first because he knew them. He had a level of of contact with them. And it's not that I'm telling you to ignore family members. I'm not telling you to ignore those that knew you growing up or that you are, have intimate, had intimate relationships with before you were saved. I am telling you rather that recognize that you may not be the best tool to reach them. And I see a lot of people that come out of certain kinds of backgrounds and feel that they are... That they, and they want to go back in and, and reach those people in whatever sin environment it was, whether it's drunkenness or drug abuse or gang life. Or, and they want to go back in and reach those kinds of people. And, and I have to applaud the heart that's there, and I recognize it. I share it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're the best agent for Christ in that environment. You certainly need to be involved and not neglect them. But it may not be that you are the best agent to reach them. And here, God is very precise in saying, at the outset, they're not going to listen to your testimony. Your testimony is too close. You're not the one. They're not going to listen to you. And that didn't change for 25 years. They still aren't going to listen to them. And we think that somehow I should go and reach the people who are just like me before I came to know Christ. And that really isn't the premise of evangelism. That isn't the key. 
And that's, for Paul, what missions was really about, is to understand that if they won't receive your testimony there because it is so familiar to them and because it struck too close to home, they didn't want to hear it, um, that you need to go to others who were anxious to hear it. And I often wonder how many people came to know Christ who weren't out of the milieu of south-central Chicago because of the testimonies of Pacific Garden Mission. They struck a chord with me, and I never got involved in any of that stuff growing up. But I was like, wow. God is doing great things in those people's lives. He can do something in my life. Not because I sinned like they sinned or were involved in the activities they were involved in, but maybe because I wasn't. And God had delivered me from it before I could even get, but I could easily fall into that. We approach evangelism too many times with the wisdom of men, with the rationalization of our own minds that somehow I'm the most qualified to reach them because they know me. And I know them. And therefore, I'm the best candidate to go into there. But that really doesn't ring true with God's Word. God's Word is pretty consistent that we need to sometimes and maybe often leave our comfort zone and go to those who are very dissimilar to us and demonstrate that I love you not because I'm related to you. I love you not because I was like you. I love you not because you're doing the things I'm doing. I love you not because... You have the same background or history as me, but I love you because God loved you. And maybe the ones we ought to be going to are those that are so radically different from us. It's like, what are you doing here talking to us? For there is the testimony of the love of God who is so far apart from us but loved us enough to become one of us. And this is the power of sacrificial love. This is the power of the incarnation. And we are told that we are to be Christ to others, not that we are the ones that die for them, but we are the ones that are on mission to go to them with the message. And when I look at how Paul's going to be received by all the Gentiles from here on out. What a contrast, huh? What a contrast. They are going to listen and listen and listen and listen some more. They're going to keep him around because they love talking to this guy. The Jews couldn't let him finish his discourse. As soon as they got to one word, the word Gentiles, they went bananas. They wouldn't listen. But the Gentiles, they they keep Paul around just to have conversation. They love the guy. And over and over again, they want to set him free, but that's not in the purposes of God. And oh, that we would have this kind of spirit of recognizing that I will minister to the people that God leads me to minister to. I'm not going to try to manipulate this and say, I only go to those. You know that I was once on a national board for a mission agency. Um, And so we had to interview 
candidates. That was one of our jobs. And so they would come in and share their heart's ministry. And, and uh, we would have to prove them to go out and start raising support. And so we would have candidates come in and share um, their different kinds of ministries. And um, over and over and over again, it was the same story. To the point that I finally just interjected out of frustration. That here comes the deaf person. I'm here. I want to reach deaf people for Christ. And here comes the Hispanic person. I want to reach Hispanic people for Christ. Here comes the black person. I want to reach black people for Christ. Here comes the Native American. I want to meet, reach Native Americans for Christ. And I finally just said, it was, I think it was one of the black candidates. And I said, so if I walked into your church, you wouldn't want to reach me for Christ because of my skin color? Well, I said, think about your statement. Your statement is, I'm going, and he kept calling them his people, his people. His, I want to reach my people. I want to reach my people. And the fact is that we're all a little guilty of wanting to reach my people. Well, that my people is those that we're blood related to, or whether those my people are those within our social economic zone. Uh, my people tend to be those that are like me, that I'm comfortable around. I want to go back and reach them. And I appreciate the heart, like I said, but it flies in the face of the truth of Scripture. That the real evidence that you are driven by the love of God and not the love of your people is when you go to those who are not your people and call them your people. When you truly want to share the gospel with all men, not just with those that are like you. I didn't make a lot of friends that day on the board. Other board members tried to correct me and didn't get very far. Imagine. I'm a stubborn person when I think I'm right. I'm even more stubborn when I know I'm right. Use your testimony. But don't narrow it down to those that you that are like you, and recognize that you may be the one that not the best one to reach those that you love and want desperately come to know Christ. You may not be the best one to reach them, and your best thing maybe is to get out of the way and pray for God to bring into their life the one who can reach them. Consider who reached you. We're sending a couple of non-skaters every Saturday into the skate park to reach a bunch of kids who are so radically different than David and Jeremy. And they have relationships down there. And we've seen some young people come into here. We, hi, Daniel. We've seen Angel come in here. We've seen these young guys come in here. Because they have a heart for people that aren't like them. And this is what the love of God calls us to. Not to reach the people we're comfortable with, but maybe to reach people we're the most uncomfortable with. Who aren't like us. Who maybe... We don't have a natural inclination to reach them with Christ, for Christ. 
and they know it as much as you know it. And that's why when you come to them with the gospel, they know this is weird. This is different. You're different. Why do you spend all this time here on us? You're not like us. You don't talk like us. You don't look like us. You don't dress like us. You don't behave like us. You got no blood relationship to us. Why are you putting so much yourself into us? Well, there's only one reason, right? That one reason is I have a mission and I want to share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he loved you and wants to deliver you from your sin and error. Oh, that we would recognize that sometimes the most effective and the most God-like ministry is cross-cultural. And embrace it rather than trying to prevent it. So Paul here needs to recognize that the Lord will deal with Jerusalem. Myriads of Jews came to know Christ in Jerusalem without Paul's help. That's the testimony of James. But myriads upon myriads of Gentiles came to know Christ because Paul was willing to leave his comfort area. And the area in which he could move and work very naturally Because Paul went out with the love of God and nothing else to motivate him. Many more came to know him as Savior and Lord. And we're going to see that effect on the balance of his imprisonment ministry as well, I think. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you broke us of our self-righteousness. That you broke me. those things that we think we can lean on and depend upon, but Lord, we know that they are nothing. In fact, they are worse than that. Rather than being for our benefit, they end up being a detriment and further judgment upon our head should we trust in them and deny our need for you. Lord, I pray if there's any here that is in that condition, that just coming to church is the basis of their claim to heaven and to deliverance. Lord, I pray that you might, through this message, throw them to the ground and demonstrate how blind they are and how much in need they still remain. And Lord, we... We pray for the lost around us. And certainly we pray for those that, of our family members who don't know you as Savior and Lord, and we so desperately want them to come to know Christ. Of those within our community that we get along with and like, but we know that they aren't yours, and they don't love you and know you, and some are very religious, and we can feel very comfortable being around them, but they're lost. And Lord, We have testified to them. We have shared. We have, they have seen our lives, but it's not enough. And so Lord, we pray that you might bring into their lives those who can reach them, who will 
penetrate that hardness that can easily be shaped against ones that they know well and bring them to yourself. And Lord, while we pray thusly for these we love, we also recognize that we may be just that instrument for others. We never thought that we would be the agent to be used to send them the gospel. Lord, who would think that a Jew of Jews would be sent to reach Gentiles? And so, Lord, we pray that we might have that spirit within us, that willingness to go out in places that we are really uncomfortable in. That we are Unknown, or we are unexpected, that we might seek to reach some for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, forgive us of any prejudice that has kept us from sharing the gospel with any man and every man. We pray, saints, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.